everyone. Welcome back to the left page. I am Frank, your always online historian, researcher, writer, and podcaster. <laughs> I am here today in another great episode and guest as we're going to delve into some of the gothics, some folklore, and just, just have a lot of fun. And I am here today with Icy Cedric of the Fabulous Folklore Podcast talking about her work on Black Dog and Other Gothic Tales. Welcome. Hello, are you all right? It's, uh, it's a real pleasure having you on, having followed some of your work in uh, Romance in the Gothic and some of the workshops you did, along with the podcast itself. This, uh, this book, which um, you, you, you mentioned about us talking about, it's, it's really fun. Uh, I, ha- I had a blast reading it. And it's basically, for those who haven't read it, it's uh, a collection of different Gothic tales, including both familiar folklore creatures along with entirely new stories and which you basically play with and create interesting stories and narratives that are very brief uh, but at the same time they're also very dark and very fun there's a good range there there's a good range yeah I like to have a range of um, of lengths in there as well because sometimes mm-hmm. there's nothing worse than like if you're reading in bed and you're starting to get tired and you're like or I don't want to just stop in the middle of a chapter. And so sort of, I think flash fiction is quite good for that because you can, it's a bit more than, oh, I'll just read one more. I'll just read one more. And so I quite, I quite like having that mixture of, of lengths. But yeah, there's a mixture of, is it styles? I'm not really sure because they're all, they're all based around uh, either actual folklore legends or mm-hmm. something that seems like it could be folklore. And according to one review of one of the collections, someone thought it was a genuine legend. So I'm like, hooray, I've created an <laughs> urban legend. Um, and um, But yeah, so it was, it was very much a way of exploring things. And weirdly, that a lot of them ended up being from like a historical background. And I've no idea why I suddenly decided to start writing historical-based fiction. But it's almost more fun in a way, I think, because then you can imagine how the past might have been without getting distracted by like technology and so on. Yeah, no, that sounds really interesting. I, I hadn't, like, because there's a, such a variety of settings in different places and times, now thinking about it, it's like, hmm, how do you incorporate some of this history into folklore in ways that might be familiar or might not? Uh, so, yeah, no, I, I like that. Especially as a historian, like, in, in incorporating w- with fiction and these messing these things together and confusing them and ah, making a mess of it it definitely sounds like a brilliant idea and it's funny because part of my my favorite part of the writing process is the research part so I, I always kind of feel like my main sort of fiction series is like a fantasy series I made up the world building there's not really any research to do because I just make it up as I go along but that's fun in a different way but I think the actual research for these kind of stories is more fun because I always take this approach and I've, I've done this every time I've written historical fiction that anyone can criticize the, the storytelling, the characters, the dialogue, whatever they want, but they cannot criticize the historical accuracy because that is the bit that I'm like, that is not going to be the thing I'm pulled upon. So I always like to try and make things as realistic as I can to the extent that in one of the stories it's set in carnival in Venice and I was even on google maps following the route to make sure that the route actually made sense because I've been to Venice umpteen times but it's it's easier seeing it from above as you can imagine 
So yeah, I was making, I was just sitting the trace and the routes to make sure that they made sense because I thought I don't want someone to be like, oh, hang on, that that road doesn't go there because that would have, that would have annoyed me. There's a level of exactness that I think is probably unnecessary, but it, you know, makes me happy. Oh, that's fair. I can agree with that. <laughs> so one of the things I was was thinking about because like the, the stories are very different in themselves, both in the the, in the themes and aspects, and I. <laughs> According to my personal taste, too, some I liked more than others. Uh, just from like, you know, the, the very, <laughs> the bleak ones are, uh, they're fun, but eh, bleak. <laughs> but still, the, the, it's it's all good. But uh, before like engaging with um, any uh, like particular, go, going on a more like sort of generic aspect of some of the themes and like the folklore and the gothic and whatnot, just sort of asking like some, if there's, we can do this in any order, really. But uh, any stories that you wanted to mention uh, in particular before or after? I think, I mean, I, I, I know which one my pet favourite is, and that's probably dreadful to have favourites. And it's <laughs> Midnight Screams at Holborn, because that one's based on a snippet of actual folklore. Um, so I didn't need to, I mean, I made stuff up for it, but I like the, the core of the story, this idea of, people believing that the old British Museum tube station was haunted because that used to be between Tottenham Court Road and I think Holborn. So it was, it's not there now. I think it's like a bank or something now, Mm. but, um, and if, and it was supposed to be haunted by the ghost of an Egyptian princess from the nearby British Museum, because why not? And the, um, and I think she was a, a princess who may have been kept in the storeroom or something. So it's, like that's gotta hurt, you know, that you've been taken yeah. all the way from like your homeland to a museum and you're kept in a storeroom. I mean, that would that would that would annoy anyone. But the story goes that in I, I think it was 1933, before this closed the station, they had this bet for who could spend the night in this haunted tube station and kind of survive. And I was like, oh, that would make a good story. Well, I shall write it then. And then I went off and, and wrote it and obviously made up other stuff in the in the tunnels because let's be honest, it's the underground. You can imagine most things are down there. And other bits and pieces, I kind of embellished the the story. And obviously I have no idea what the layout of the British Museum tube <laughs> station is like. So I just based it on like every tube station I've been in because they're all pretty similar. Yeah. And, um, and that it's also, and this is a bit of a spoiler, but it's it's, it's also not one of the bleak ones that you mentioned, because um, <laughs> I do kind of run my 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 stories kind of have to pass like the mother test because my my mom reads all my my stories, Ooh. and uh, she'll sort of be like, I like that one, didn't like the ending, and, and, um, <laughs> and then for this one, Midnight um, Screams at Holborn, she read that one, she said, oh, I like that one, <laughs> and um, and it was quite funny because a couple of years ago for Christmas. I did a reading of it as part of a ghost stories for Christmas event at the uh, at the castle. Keep it in town, and I mean that's just one of the cool things about where I live. We have a 12th century castle in the city centre. Yes. And I thought I've got I've got to read a story out, but I thought I want to pick one that has a happy ending. I've no idea why, <laughs> so I picked <laughs> that one. So it's kind of got a bit of a special place in my heart for that reason. Oh, that's very fair. But yeah, like it just, just some like the aspect as a tube station. I've never been to London or the London Metro, but you know that sounded very familiar. Like yeah, no, I I can picture this. <laughs> I think they're kind of the same the world over. Really, it's just um, I imagine it possibly may have been cleaner in those days. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> 
but yeah, I think, I mean, some of my favorite, I think, non necessary. Well, <laughs> in my favorites, I also included uh, some of the ble bleaker ones, which, because I, I just, I really enjoyed the. I mean, I think the whole setting and, and what you do with it in A Woman of Disrepute, where it's basically about this, it's about this prostitute that winds up dead in the River Thames, I believe. Uh, yeah. If I'm not mistaken. And the main character that we're following, he he has a particular friend who is painting this scene. And in this scene of the dead prostitute, there's a mysterious figure in the corner. And he goes and investigate and, well... Chaos and horror ensues, <laughs> to put it mildly and without much, many spoilers. But I really enjoy like the whole setting and the mystery there, I think. Because we, we can sort of guess the way things are going, but the wrapping of things and... Uh, oh, that, that was chilling. That was really good. And I, I had a lot of fun. But I also really enjoyed the cursed one which is the one that you mentioned that is in Venice, which has, oh, intrigue, intrigue and secret societies. And that's just, yes. Oh, the yes. Along with a fascinating monster that I will not spoil because that's, that's one definitely worth reading. And the, the other one I mentioned it, or have noted is the Charterhouse Bullies, uh, which is a particularly interesting exploration of like the memory of the plague and the scars in both geographically and sort of spiritually uh, so that was that was really fun that this, just as a sort of kickoff point to to delve into some of the other elements that uh, that appear in common in the stories like there are the the question about them being gothic tales i think it's very along with the folklore, it's really interesting the way that they connect with the history, but also with a sort of fantastical and horror and horrifying, really. The way that you can both have a creature that we don't know, that, that is uh, invented in this story, but that can also be interesting that... Uh, Basically, what I'm where I'm getting at as well is that I love folk folklore and world building that is previous and that exists before and after the story that we're reading, and that's uh, that def there's definitely an effect that you put into these stories both as we read them and the ones that are actual folklore, but not the like yeah no I I could believe this or like yeah no I I'd like to know more or, or it's really cool so yeah that's uh. It's definitely something that I had a lot of fun reading the stories. Oh, I'm glad you liked them. I think the key for me is it's how you embed, because for me, the monster is the best part. Like, of course. let's be honest, they're monsters. That's why I did a whole workshop on how to build your own monster, because monsters are awesome. And I think with with any of them, that obviously I've subconsciously like absorbed all of this folklore research that I've been doing for years and years and years, and then kind of... I guess your unconscious then puts bits of them together and then spits them back out again, which is a weird process in and of itself. But I think the, for me, it's also that sense that you want to feel like each story is almost like someone's just like leaned in through a window and like peering in on a snapshot of this, of this existence. And then they'll leave, but everything else will continue 
on afterwards. And it was interesting that you mentioned the Charterhouse Bullies because that one is based on, again, a snippet of folklore that I read mm-hmm. about this, this concept of being able to hear those in plague pits when the when they're you know no longer close to the surface and i came across that in a book oh i want to say it was owen owen davies social history of ghosts i want to say it was that one it was i was that mm. one it was london's dead it was one of the two and i remember just thinking oh wow that's just begging after a story written about it's like you've got yeah. schoolyards you've got school boys and then you've got the plague victims Ooh, what could go wrong <laughs> so i think again it was the thing that because there's almost an like the the events of the story could be replicated so you've got that that sense of this could just keep happening again and again and i think that's that's the thing that almost makes them more horrifying that even yeah. though you've like leaned in and watched a little bit of it and then leaned back out again it's still continuing in its own little universe which you you don't get i guess with the ones with the so-called happy ending because they've got a bit more closure but then at the same time do they really because obviously certain elements may still be knocking about they're just not necessarily um in your face about it yeah yeah i that makes a lot of sense especially on uh, the charterhouse bullies the, the most interesting thing about that story, I think, is that, like, it's so... You, you could easily picture that happening. So easily. So easily. And it works really well as a story. So, uh, I, yeah, that, that was great. Yeah, I think anyone who's ever been to school will will, will read that one and just go, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, to, to delve a bit into these aspects of like the folklore and both like creating folklore and writing on folklore um, how do you generally think or consider or engage with uh, this past folklore both from a, like a, a point of view of someone who researches and works on it both in your own work and with fabulous folklore uh, but also from the point of view as a writer like how how do you consider both creating them or incorporating them into stories or not or choosing not to really so yeah just want to ask a bit about that um i think ultimately it's kind of a bit of a cop-out because all folklore is a story of some description (laughs) even if it's just like a snippet of something so even if it's like when you get these weird little legends attached to things like for example um there's a a tower in in the city center where i live which is believed to have a, a revolving cavalier ghost in it. And it's revolving because the fact you'd be walking up a spiral staircase, it's no longer there. That's as much as the folklore says. At, at sunset, at particular times, people have seen this figure. And you can then fill in the blanks. Even if you're not a writer, you can still go like, oh, well, I wonder what he's doing there. And obviously, because Newcastle was part of the English Civil War, because we were a royalist city, I think. I mean, Charles I was imprisoned here for a while at one point, but... You know, even without knowing that, you can still be like, well, you know, why is he going up the tower? Sort of, does he do this all the time? Why, why, why is that the bit that he replays? Does something happen to him? So I think most people, because we're so steeped in stories and how they work from watching TV, films, reading books, whatever, I think humans naturally tend towards filling in the gaps anyway. So folklore lends itself really well to that as a writer, because then you can almost cherry pick bits and I'm very specific about which parts I cherry pick as well and Mm -hmm. 
um, but I'll get onto that bit later. Um, how I choose what I'm going to do. But I think there's also because it, it, what's really, really interesting, and this is where the study of folklore then comes in, is there are, in some ways, there are quite a lot of universal themes. Um, like I've read of particular folk tales that are like, that are in like the you know, British folklore, but then they also appear, say, in France, or they might appear in, um, in Russia or uh, Spain or whatever. And they've all erupted kind of almost at the same time. Um, so there is almost this, and they always speak to universal themes like fear of the unknown or fear of the other or uh, fear of the dark is a very, very understandable one. <laughs> um, you know, so they all kind of feed into that. You get a lot of the stuff around plague in particular. And I think we've seen in, in modern times how quickly misinformation can spread. So I think it's quite interesting to see that people had the exact same problems in previous centuries. Humans have yeah. not changed. Uh, it's just the method of distribution of the information has. And therefore, when you're writing folklore, you can make up creatures or scenarios that people will find really familiar from the folklore they know. Um, so even if it's something you've invented, there's still an element of, I don't want to say realism because that's not, relatability, that's the word I'm looking for. There's a degree of relatability because someone can go, oh, this is a bit like that story. And as an example, you find there's a, a really, really common story that I've done ghost walks in, in in so many cities around the UK. Like I try them out basically. And on like four of them, I've there's this particular tale about premature burial. And it always involves this woman who seemingly dies. She's buried and then grave robbers are like, oh, she's still wearing her jewellery. It's either grave robbers or like the sexton of the church. It's somebody anyway. And they go to take her rings off. They can't. So they try and cut her finger off. And then she wakes up because she was actually in a state of catalepsy, not actually dead. And then she goes home and either freaks out her family, which let's be honest, it would, or everyone lives happily ever after. And uh, to the extent there's actually a gravestone somewhere that I think it says uh, lived once, buried twice, which I just think is marvellous. And Because uh, it's just, imagine having that on your tombstone. But the thing is, it's like, there's, I, I mean, I've had that in Edinburgh, I've had that in York, I've had that in London, and I've heard it in other parts of the country as well. Uh, and I'm, the British Isles more widely. And it to me, that sort of speaks to, again, the universality of these stories that mm. you you could do something around that concept and set it pretty much anywhere and that have sort of Western burial customs and people would go, yep, that is a thing. And I think that's where as a writer of folklore, it's worth reading as much folklore as you can. And I do mean obviously in a fiction sense, reading actual folklore helps. But then as a researcher, you always have to bear in mind that folklore are stories. So therefore it's really hard like, to find like the official version of something because it often doesn't exist and you find regional variations and you find this when you share things on the folklore thursday hashtag on twitter you might share a story that's that's from from your area and someone else will go oh the version i heard was like this and it'll have a variation so it's bearing in mind that your folklore as a writer then almost becomes a variation on a theme from what already exists which is already a variation on a theme so folklore to me has kind of become like an endless series of remixes uh, where no one's mm. really sure who the original artist was and you know and I suppose and this is where mythology differs because obviously you can usually find 
you know ancient sources for those but yeah for folklore itself it's like because you don't know where it came from or why it appeared it's it's much more difficult to find that original point so then it's basically a question going here are all the beliefs that i found and then just presenting them and people can sort of choose their favorite yeah that makes sense i love that idea of the remix (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm gonna use that at some point or at least like for a title or whatnot this like yeah, no, this, this needs to be written down. <laughs> <laughs> because it speaks to that experience of, like, how things can change so much. Like, I, at least thinking a few of the... I've thought about this question a lot before, but folklore in Brazil, it's a, an elaborate, confusing, difficult thing because it, it's a lot of the time connected to indigenous beliefs that were sort of appropriated, reconfigured, and changed. And even then, the amount and different possible versions that they can have so for example like um you have the figure of the the headless mule and if i'm not mistaken it's it's usually about a woman who was transformed into it because she had relationships with a priest or something along those lines but also and then there's a possibility of like, is it permanent? Can she turn back? Is there something that becomes specific or not? And these, both the minutiae and the reasons why these things happen, they vary a lot. And it's, it, it makes sense that like, is there an original version? Maybe. Does it matter? Nah, it's fine. <laughs> Whatever we do and how we work with them in, in these different ways can, it, it, it doesn't matter if, if it is faithful to an original or not, like it's an exploration of them. Yeah, I mean, even the Brothers Grimm didn't necessarily preserve the originals because obviously some of them they massaged them because they had their own agendas in collecting the the fairy tales that they did. Um, and this is this is unfo- the unfortunate side of folklore. I think the fact that if you're looking at say for example you're looking at local folklore you don't tend to get it in the same way because you're looking at the folklore of like an area so if you look at where i am in the northeast particularly into like the the county leading up to scotland northumberland we've obviously got a lot of history of the border moving so sometimes we've been in scotland sometimes we haven't and we've obviously got a lot of the roman influence we had the border reavers and so on so there's quite a lot of bloodshed in like violence and whatnot in this particular part of the world so we then end up with obviously quite a lot of ghost stories as you might imagine <laughs> which is fairly standard i think for that kind of thing uh, i mean we've got more castles than you can shake a stick at so they've obviously all got their own resident specters but then you've also got loads and loads of fairy stories which is, seems like a really strange thing to have in such a bloodthirsty part of the country but you're then finding like the stories that people were telling each other in that area. But then when you start trying to find folklore and, and it almost becomes when you look more at like the mythic legends of heroes and so on, that's when you start getting into slightly dicey territory where people are trying to construct this almost national identity out of the folklore. That's where it becomes problematic because mm. again, they're forgetting that we don't know who the original stories were written by or indeed why. And stories often get distorted in the telling so you don't know how far away from the original it's actually veered and I think in some ways to me I always say on my podcast that folklore is kind of like a set of cautionary tales because they nearly always include 
instructions for what you shouldn't do. So everybody kind of you know, grows up with some of these anyway. No things like throwing salt over your shoulder if you spill it and things like that. And people do have no idea why they do this, but they do. And some of it makes perfect sense. Like I've just done a series on on water folklore, and there's quite a lot of beings that live in like rivers and lakes. Because if you couldn't swim, they're really dangerous places. And even if you can swim, they can be really dangerous places. So what is a better way to discourage someone from doing something? Do you go, that's dangerous, don't do it? In which case, most people are going to go, nah, it'll be fine, and it won't. Or do you go, there's a horrible monster that's going to eat you if you swim in there? Clearly, people are going to go, oh, oh, there's, I might actually be in danger. So a lot of them become cautionary tales, and I think that's where it then becomes a really peculiar thing to try and draw on to justify an ideology, because you're like, no, are you going to start, like, venerating health and safety manuals i hope not you know and it's just a really strange approach to me and i think that's where folklore for me then becomes more interesting as like this window into earlier times and what people believed and how people navigated the world and i think it that's where it's it, it they become almost historical documents despite the fact that they're not about real events we hope yeah. i mean i would hope that there wasn't such a thing as the lambdon worm and because <laughs> that that would be terrifying so uh, yeah, I think folklore really, it it should be more about the kind of the study of our ancestors' emotional landscape mm -hmm. and how they navigated a world where they didn't understand a lot of stuff compared to now where people still do it. It's just it's it's gone into the realm of the conspiracy theory. So it's quite interesting to sort of see how the, the change has happened. But I, I do think you, you, you do need to be mindful of the, the motivation for studying folklore before you kind of get into it. Yeah, no, I agree. And I really like that link of, especially in terms of like cautionary tales of like connecting both this folklore with conspiracy theories and like all these, uh, what's the name of the thing again? Like, like S SCPs, uh, which mm. are these sort of stories and urban legends and things that are made up and not. And, you know, it, it's interesting, like the way these link together and speak to different fears too mm. so i i think as a cautionary tale makes a lot of sense to understand of course some of them will be edging on some aspects that are more ideological and more political but in general like it's like it makes a lot of sense to understand like oh uh don't don't go into the dark forest ever <laughs> especially not at night it's like yeah, no, fair enough. Don't go if you go into the mysterious, into the dark forest. Don't go into a, a random shack. Exactly, and I think it's it's easier to remember as well. Like we've got a, a superstition about don't eat blackberries after Old Michaelmas Eve. Or is that Old Michaelmas Eve or Old Michaelmas Day? And it's basically like the tenth of October, and it's because after that point they go mouldy and they grow horrible fuzz and they're just not really edible. So instead, rather than saying don't eat them because they've gone a bit rancid. Instead, the superstition is that that's the day that the, the devil fell from heaven and he landed in a blackberry bush and then spat on the blackberries because he didn't like getting the thorns in his bum. And, and that's why you shouldn't eat them after that day. And you sort of think, I know the scientific reason why you're not supposed to do that, but I much prefer the folklore version. And again, which one are you going to remember? Well, I suppose, obviously, if you've tried eating them after the 10th of October, you'll have learned from experience. But I guess, yeah, in, in, in earlier times when they wouldn't have like had the same knowledge of 
bacteria and germ theory and all that kind of thing. You know, the devil spitting on your blackberry bush makes just as much sense as fungus and mold does, but it's just fungus and mold isn't quite as exciting as the devil. So, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Makes a lot of sense. I think some of the other aspects that I want to ask, sort of get into a bit, or I like how. Because we, we've been mentioning about folklore and engaging with these aspects, especially as, you know, cr and creating these monsters and filling these stories a lot. And how do you engage with, like, we've mentioned a bit about this, so uh, feel free to comment into both a more particular aspect of it or we can move on. But on how building this horror and building, like, the tension both, because it it happens in such different ways, both in different times, in different places, in different social spaces as well. So, yeah, I guess just wanted to ask a bit about that, how both works for you and how you find that interesting, uh, I don't know, it's a broad question. <laughs> I think horror is such a funny, funny genre anyway. And obviously it's, at the time of doing this, it's all over Twitter because <laughs> of someone's rather inane comment that horror can't be set in space, which is nonsense, quite frankly. And and I suppose the, the problem with horror um, is it's much like comedy. It is a genre that is not location dependent. It's not setting dependent. It is dependent solely on an emotional reaction that it provokes. So, you know, you can set comedies pretty much anywhere. And at any time and the only the only requirement is that they make someone laugh not necessarily everybody but somebody and if you then take a horror film as another example this is why you can have a horror film set in space you can have a horror novel set in oh i don't know some made-up village where you've got these cosmic creatures trying to break through and so on you know it's like horror pretty much you can that's why you can still read M.R. James and still feel chilled by it, even though we're not living in early 20th century Cambridge. It's still weird. And I think that's both a blessing and a curse because some horror is then like the slow burn variety where it takes a really long time to ramp up. But the problem is if you're then familiar with the genre, you're like screaming at the person, get out, get out, get out before anything happens. <laughs> Or you go, yeah, that's that's not so bad. I could live with that. Um, and then, of course, you've got the one where it ramps up too quickly and then you don't care about the main character enough for whatever happens to them, mm -hmm. which is why slasher films who kill a character in the first five minutes, yeah. I don't know who this person is. You know, I have, I'm not emotionally invested in them yet. And that's the, that's the thing with horror. So I think when you're figuring out how the story's going to unravel, it kind of... I don't really like the slow burn because, I mean, you've already commented on the length of my stories anyway. I really struggle with any any longer stuff because I just want to kind of mm -hmm. get to the point. <laughs> and it's sort of all the all the padding and the window dress. And I'm like, nah. So you're never going to get George R. R. Martin length books from me because it's just, I, I'd bore myself if I had to make something that long. But I think if you're doing it in a short story, it's then almost harder because you've got fewer words to play with, but you still have to somehow negotiate the passage of time. And I think that's where the folkloric stuff comes in because of the fact that people already intrinsically have this knowledge of the pattern of how folklore stories work. You can kind of borrow those patterns 
and people will just go with them because it's familiar. So they're like, yeah, I know that this is going to happen. It's, it's kind of like following the beats almost. And not in a formulaic way. I think you tend to do it intuitively. Um, of, you know, this is going to happen and that's going to lead to that and that's going to lead to that. So it's how you set up this chain of cause and effect, really. But doing it in such a way that while, yes, it's familiar, doesn't feel like they've necessarily read it before. So it's a bit of a fine act to balance us. I don't know if that answered the question at all. I, mean, I don't know what, the, what was the question I asked. <laughs> so I'm not sure I asked the question. But <laughs> I think it's definitely the point on how doing that and connecting the, to the folklore. Because I'm thinking, and I'll, I'll mention it to you afterwards, because I, I don't need to do this on air. But uh, I was recently reading a, a story that brings up both folklore and horror, but it's particularly slow, and it hits on those beats that are like, yes, I know what you're going, yes, I know, yes, yes, the point. <laughs> so, but on the other hand, like, doing horror quickly is really difficult, because on the one hand, you need to realize, like, okay, what is the horror I'm going for? What is the response? Like, it's... I say, I... I really like the the podcast, The Horror of Anger, and they have said before, like, horror, horror wants to do things to your body. And I really like that definition as well, and I use it a lot because it's about this response, it's about this fear, this uh, revulsion, or this, uh, or the strangeness. So, what you're trying to create, like, for example, the, um, the Jar by the Door, I believe, has... It has a couple of different beats that work really well because it has both tension, it has sort of more like the, the grotesque, but it also a, a bit about the, the fear and it's like, ah, and the shock at the end, uh, kind of. It, it's a fun story about your neighbors, so to speak. But it's, it's interesting how in a lot of these stories and in, in horror in general, like, the, the horror that you're trying to create or especially when you're because you can both set something in a horror environment but not have it be like horrifying not create this response necessarily but you can do both and I think these stories they really do achieve that they do and the folklore I think it's exactly as you said it it works as this sort of cement of all the stories that that allows this familiar and the strange and these things to sort of join together. Again, thinking to, I forgot the name, but the one you mentioned on the tube. Oh, Midnight Screams at Holborn. Midnight Screams at Holborn, yes. That one, as I mentioned, like I've not, never been to the London Metro, and yet like the familiarity of the space, even if the, the folklore itself reports to something older, works a lot. And because of the way the story goes, the tension is definitely there and a lot of, like, the dark, you know, it, it works. What can I say? So, yeah, I think I love the connections that exist there and how the folklore, the horror, and this, this gothic, this, these creatures, these monsters, and these settings work in doing all this. It's just, it's terrifying, but it's a lot of fun. Well, it's funny that you say terrifying because one of the things about the Gothic is that it's it's ultimately made up of, I mean, it, obviously the Gothic is pretty much one of those words that's applied to everything now. Uh, it's much like liminal gets completely misused as well. 
And I've even seen makeup being advertised as being liminal. And I'm like, you don't know what that word means. (laughs) But anyway, I'll get off that soapbox before I start. The the whole thing with the Gothic, when you look back at the really early Gothic literature, is you always had these twin drives. You had the, the strand that wanted to terrify you, which was often based on like an intellectual fear of not knowing or wanting to know why something was the way it was. And that one lends itself really well to the ghost story because you're trying to find your way around inside this world. And obviously the character is trying to do this as well, this world in which the dead appear not to stay in their graves, but not in a zombie sense. But then you also have the horrifying strand, which is the one where it's more of a bodily revulsion. So it's like a visceral reaction to what you're reading. And that's where you tend to get a lot of the body horror and so on. And I'm not going to lie, if I had to like hands down pick which one I prefer, I'm definitely with the, the terror strand. And I just think that it's kind of like that, I suppose because very few things actually freak me out, really. Mm. Um, So the body horror stuff, because I mean, I I co-wrote a book on body horror and it was about how specific body parts are considered gothic in sort of film and literature. And so I've seen a lot of body horror and a lot of it, you just kind of go, oh, they're nice special effects. And I don't find it particularly horrifying. (laughs) Whereas the terror stuff, you know, and this is where even thrillers can sometimes fit into into this as well. So they don't even need to have a supernatural thing in them to be terrifying. But I think it's that sense of like not really known and it's the intellectual anxiety I find a lot worse because it's almost like the fear of what you're imagining rather than what's there. And I think so that's where the job by the door is actually quite a rare instance of me doing body horror because I don't really do it very often because I'm just a bit meh about the whole thing. But with that one, obviously, it was just because, you know, that line in Eleanor Rigby just basically was the spring point for the rest of the, uh, which I don't want to say in case I get sued or anything, because, you know, <laughs> but the the job by the door line in Eleanor Rigby should be enough of a clue for most people. And, and yeah, whereas, whereas the rest of them, I think are, are kind of, I think anyway, I think there's possibly possibly one other one that I can think of but there's occasionally elements of body horror in them but generally speaking I wanted I wanted to sort of like terrify people so when people are like "Ooh, oh I was really chilled reading this I'm like yes I've done my job then um so it's kind of like does somebody now think twice before you know doing something a bit like you know you want to do for for people what like Jaws did for going to the beach that's kind of the uh the ambition yeah I uh I, I didn't write it down but I should have but the dead house which is about a dead house, a morgue. Uh, I want to say 19th century morgue. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's uh, that one. I mean, if I'm ever in a similar situation, one, I'll heed the warnings, and two, I will answer. So, <laughs> you know, that was. <laughs> that was a funny story, right? Because again, it started out, but that was definitely a snippet in Owen Davies' Social History of Ghosts. And it was about the idea that when mortuaries first came in and morgues first came in, hospitals would obviously try and put them at the fringes of the building because they didn't have them before this point. And I think it might have been late 18th century, actually. And then so people were like scared to even walk past. So that then became a flash fiction, which is like the first sort of portion of the story. And then I kind of thought, oh, oh, I wonder what would happen if 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 if, if this bit happened. And then... Um, I decided, and I'm not going to lie, like I had literally no clue what was going to happen when she goes through the doors into the dead house. And I just kind of made it up as I went along. 
And I really, really, really have so much respect for plotters. So people who sit down and they've got it mapped out and they've got their, this is going to happen in scene three of chapter six and everything. I really have so much pain, like so much like, oh my God, that's amazing. I, I can't do that though. And I literally have to just make it up as I go along. And I might have a vague notion of a direction that I'm going in, but ultimately how I get there, I don't even know how I'm going to do that. And then it's only when I go back and reread it that I'm like, oh, wow, there was actually a plan after all. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's uh, so that's where the Dead House kind of wandered off on its own track and became its own thing. But then it also, other bits of folklore then shore it up as well. So it's, again, it's one of those ones where I think if you're wanting to use folklore in your writing, I can, I can only really recommend enough read a lot of it because the more that you read and absorb it the more you can then just go oh what do I need this character to do and then you can just pull a bit out and go oh well I mean I did this in um my young adult supernatural adventure I guess it is the stolen ghost it's crammed with folklore because I just needed the character to do certain things at certain points so it's kind mm-hmm. of like oh okay so I need to find a way to 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 trap her in the afterlife I shall make her eat something because that's how Persephone gets stuck in the underworld. And then I just kind of borrowed parts from like folklore and and, 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 and mythology. Um, and I should point out with the mythology as well, I tend to stick to Greek and Roman, uh, sometimes in ancient Egypt, because obviously that's, there's not the continuing line of it, you know, sort of from, from mm-hmm. ancient Egypt to now. And obviously the Romans, well, I mean, you know, they, uh, they moved to where I live, so <laughs> they brought their gods with them. And I kind of, so I kind of feel like the Romans and the Greeks, obviously because a lot of the Roman mythology is just Greek with the names changed, I sort of feel like I feel quite comfortable using them. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there's not that unbroken line of, of the mythology. So it's kind of, I, I don't like to take from like living traditions because mm-hmm. it's not mine. Um, unless, of course, it's a living tradition of, say, British folklore, in which case by dint of being British, therefore, you know, I can have at it. But uh, then there tends to be a difference as well between actual folklore and and, and mythology. But it, uh, I can't remember where I was going with that. But yeah, I think it was just the idea of, of, of the more that you absorb folklore. And I don't necessarily mean that you have to read folklore stuff by other fiction writers, but I mean like reading the actual folklore. Um, and a great place to start is like find out the the legends of where you live. Obviously, after COVID, and we can we can all go outside again. If anyone's doing walking tours, pointing out historical points of interest, you'd be amazed how many stories are attached to things like that. Uh, local ghost stories are fantastic in the British Isles. I, I dare say it's probably the same elsewhere. Every town will have some kind of book of like haunted whatever. I mean, I've got a whole collection of them around the country. I mean, I've even got one for the Rhine in Germany, you know, so it's kind of wow. um, so folk tales of the Rhine, you know. So I think it's, it, it, it's just as easy to start with what's actually where you live. Yeah, and it helps a lot of like both uh, like writing like places, you know, like blotting out in, in a place that you know physically also helps a lot. And that was an interesting point to comment because like, you know, uh, mentioning current Twitter messes uh, or situations that are playing out. <laughs> a whole a whole bunch of, like, sort of popular writers that, uh, you know, have both been uh, abusive in, themse- in themselves, but that also 
cultural appropriation and portrayal of certain things without a proper care research or concern. And just, you know, I, I think what we're also getting at is that when, when writing about folklore, that this reflection on traditions and considering like, oh, is this, if this is a living tradition, then how do I engage with it if I decide to engage at all? And, you know, as a good rule of thumb, if, if you want to do this sort of thing, like sensitivity readers are a thing, you know, it's the whole thing. That's why, that's why it's, the, it's good to stop and talk about, about it with people because on Twitter or in a lot of places, it's hard to have the, the, the space to say this. That's like, it's not that people shouldn't write, but if you want to write, take the care to do it properly with respect and consideration. It's not that hard. I mean, it is hard. But it's not that hard to do this if you want to. So, you know, and you should. So, yes. Yeah, I think that's something that's always worth bearing in mind. And I know, I mean, I, I, I know that some of my earlier stuff when I was younger will have appropriated stuff. And I'm, you know, I'm obviously not happy about that. But, you know, you, 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 when you know better, you do better. So um, I think that's where I, I say, obviously, I focus in terms of... Um, my fiction it naturally tends towards european stuff anyway just because that's where i've actually visited so i've actually been to locations that have then inspired stuff uh, mm -hmm. which is why there tends to be a very european focus um to what i'm doing because you know they do you know write what you know obviously like within reason i mean i don't know the 16th century so i can make some bits up but um you know, so I think, you know, you can have a little bit of leeway with historical fiction to an extent. But yeah, so I think when it comes to to, to choosing, you know, things for fabulous folklore, um, I've had people before asking, oh, you know, will you will you do an episode on this? Will you do an episode on that? And I'm sort of like, but I'm not sort of, say, Indigenous American or I'm not Indigenous Australian. So that they're not my stories to tell. Mm -hmm. However, these podcasts do cover them. And then I'm more than happy to direct people elsewhere. So I do think absolutely you know soak up if you're just interested in folklore in general soak up as many folk tales from as many places as you want because it's really important that these stories keep getting sort of like learned and enjoyed you know and yeah. and, and discussed and so on so there are loads of fabulous po uh, podcasts which will and also books if you prefer reading that will tell these stories and a lot of them are storytelling based podcasts as well so you'll literally just get to hear these really really interesting stories from other parts of the world so I, I, but I think if you're going to then write them, I bet I bet any money there is something similar in your own your own area, which would probably be a better fit. And at least then that way you have if, if you are going to do like I've got no reason for picking like folkloric elements basically from outside Europe mm -hmm. because there are other writers doing that. So I kind of think I don't want to take up space in their neck of the woods because um, I'm busy playing over here in mine. So I think in a lot of ways, I kind of think because I'm then choosing local things or even just the British Isles, I can go and visit the places where these stories apparently happened and and sort of like soak up the atmosphere in a way that I couldn't do if I was doing something, say, in Brazil. Like, that, that would make no sense, <laughs> you know? So it's kind of, I think it's, that's where it's also just simply for your own, as, as well as avoiding appropriation, just for your own writing process, it's better to go to places that you can actually access. Obviously, it becomes a little more difficult if you do actually live there. I mean, I read a series of thrillers or like cozy mysteries, whatever the title is, which involve a lot of African folk tales. 
but the author is not African, but she lives in Nairobi. So it's a, it's a bit of a strange one, you know, how that one works, because you then think, well, you are, you are in that, that environment. But otherwise, I think it's probably best to, you know, read and enjoy everybody's, but then actually use the ones that you've got access to. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense to me in how both doing it from a creative standpoint, but also, you know, just being respectful, understanding this. Perfect. <laughs> I think just sort of like, since we're here and mentioning a lot of these different themes, I guess uh, unless there's anything you want to mention a bit more specific about the book, uh, I also wanted to ask about like, what are some of the both, both in terms of folklore, what are some of your, I guess, like favorite stories or that you find more interesting in terms of both themes that you may or may have not have talked in Fabulous Folklore? but that you find interesting to work with, to research, to study. So yeah, just want to uh, ask you about that. In terms of themes in my own work, oh, that's a really hard one. Because mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm one of those, I'm, I'm dreadful. I'd, I'd be like the worst person to study for like English literature because I'm like, I'm all about the plot and the setting. Like the world building for me is the best part. So it's kind of like if there is a theme, it's probably by accident. (laughs) It's not intentionally done at all. Um, Although I think you can see, I mean, across my books, it's quite funny because all of them are about like one character standing up to a corrupt system. Oh, I wonder why that might have actually come out as a thing, which is quite funny. And I mean, I know the second book in my, my Necromancer series, Necromancer's Rogue, that one was really, really heavily influenced by Brexit. Not to the extent that you'd read it and necessarily notice it, just really, really weighed heavily on my mind. And then, uh, so I think, yeah, there's, there's definitely a trend of like, you know, the the lone or small band of people standing up against um, some kind of negative, can you have a good authoritarian? I wouldn't really say an, a, a negative authoritarian, but I don't think you can have a positive one. So that was a bit of an oxymoron. And I think there's also... I think there's there's a definite tendency of like almost like the detective strand of mm-hmm. people possibly answering knocks on doors that they should just walk straight by or um, going to investigate something that probably doesn't actually concern them and then the problems that ensue. So I think there's definitely like that, the perils of curiosity. Because I know for a fact, if I, if I walk past that door and it was knocking, I would open it, Absolutely. I'm that kind of idiot that I'll be like, yep, I've no idea what's going on there, but I'm going to go and have a look. <laughs> and that is going to get me in trouble one day. But so I, I think, yeah, it's probably the, those would be the two things that I think off the top of my head tend to come out of my work most often. Yeah. And a lot of my characters tend to do things on their own as well. So there's often like kind of a, a sort of a, a solitary independence about quite a lot of the characters as well. Yeah, now that now that I think about it, I think there's in almost all the stories in the collection, they're all about a single character. Maybe save for Midnight Screams at Holborn, where there's two people, but the others are all like a solitary character, hero, person doing something, mm. which they a lot of the time shouldn't be doing, but. <laughs> I think that probably comes from folklore because most folklore tends to boil down to, ah, you shouldn't have done that. (laughs) (laughs) um, So I think, uh, you know, just thinking about pretty much, like, because some of them have that, like the old whistle and I'll come to you, my lad, MR James thing of like, if you found this ancient whistle, 
in the sand dunes, would you blow it or not? And most of my characters, yes, they would. <laughs> I would, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, there's definitely that sort of single person who kind of creates havoc where no one needed that havoc to be made. Ah, well, what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what are some of your uh, favorite stories or narratives in folklore that you, or particular monsters even, uh, that you find most fun or interesting? Um, I think in terms of stories I'm really fond of, I've, I've, I'm such a fangirl for the sirens um, in Greek mythology. And I always get really frustrated when people confuse them with mermaids. And because it was one of those things where I was doing a blog post about them and I myself had made that same mistake of assuming sirens and mermaids were the same thing. And then I did the research and I was like, oh, oh, they're actually completely different. Oh, okay then. And I, I really, I feel like there's such a pang of pity for the way that the sirens are treated in the mythology that you, to me, you can't help but feel sorry for them. So they're really interesting. And I guess, I mean, obviously in terms of like favourite folklore, is he folklore? I'm not sure if he's folklore or urban legend. He's possibly a bit of both. And that would be spring Jack because he's another character who is based on a real person. But the, the the fiction is far more interesting than the fact, shall we say. Um, I mean, I was digging around in newspaper archives and stuff for that one. Um, but he's 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 fascinating. And and then I guess, obviously, it's not quite folklore, but a story that I do keep coming back to. I say it's from the Arthurian legends, but it's kind of not. It's like Tennyson's version. And this is uh. another example of where another writer will take part of a story and do their own thing with it and it almost becomes more interesting than the original <laughs> and it's his take on the Lady of Shalott and obviously I don't think she really has a huge amount to do in the Arthurian legends but this idea that she can't look out the window, she can only look outside from where she's imprisoned in this tower in a mirror so all she ever sees of the world is its reflection, she never sees the world itself mm-hmm. and the thing that prompts her to look out the window is Lancelot and who I always thought was a bit of a card, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> never been much of a fan of Lancelot, if I'm completely honest. And, and yes, because she looks outside and she sees him that she's kind of overcome with, with immediate love for him, that she looks out the window and obviously then spells her own doom. And I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there about like the female gaze and, and things like that, which I'd, I'd like to do something with at some point. But I, I just, I think also because a lot of the paintings of her are, are so interesting um and quite enigmatic in a lot of ways like i mean the, the first expression that she's got in the famous john william waterhouse painting it's almost like she's completely accepted her fate and she doesn't really mind uh, like she's outside now so she doesn't mind that she's drifting off to her death it's like she's she's finally broken the curse so that's that's always been quite a fascinating story but there's there's so many so many examples of folklore that i love and I mean, obviously, like a lot of them get really samey and really repetitive, but I think, and that's why Spring Heel Jack's so cool, because he just kind of literally bounces in and it's just like, whoa, what are you? So he's uh, he's really cool. I mean, obviously, I've got other favourite myths and stuff, but if I went through all of them, like, would be here <laughs> literally forever. So I'll probably just leave it at those ones. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think those, those are some some great ones. I think it's, it's been like a, a really, really fun chat about like folklore and gothic and your stories. Uh, and just like how thinking about this writing and thinking about both, like as we, we were mentioning the Gothic and some of the strands and it's been really fun. It's just, I, I don't know. I think um, from me, I think that's fine. I'm not sure if there's anything else you'd like to add or comment or mention. 
I think it's basically just if anyone listening is, is really into to folklore and wants to start working with it, I've already got my haunted house workshop, which I know you did. Um, yes. So how, how to write a haunted house story in seven steps. Um, I always I always end up breaking things down into sevens, which is such a folkloric thing to do. And it's just like, <laughs> oh my God, I'm inspired by folklore. <laughs> but I'm also going to be um, turning my workshop about how to use folklore in your fiction. I'm going to turn that into a, a course and also the build your own monster one is going to be. So that they're, they're short courses, so they're going to be like $30 or something like that. So obviously if anyone's interested in any of those, then I, I can always give you the link for where they can go to sign up to hear more about them. Of course, like any, both like in the description, I'll put all your relevant links and I will, when those become relevant, I'll share them widely, of course. I, I did both like the, both workshops and I think you did another course or something else. Uh, they were all really fun and really great. So I can't recommend them enough. Uh, the Haunted House one, I even wrote a novel about. So, you know, it works. <laughs> best testimonial ever <laughs> it's been great so where can people find you more importantly where can people support your work and fabulous folklore of course basically um everything's kind of on like my main website which is icsedgwick.com and sedgwick is spelled s-e-d-g-w-i-c-k and i always have to spell that because people always want to stick like an extra e in it or an i in it or a y in it even so it's s-e-d-g-w-i-c-k i'm on I'm, that's my name on like instagram and twitter as well and you can also buy me a coffee um, on the coffee platform. And I think, again, my address for that might be like coffee.com slash Icy because I'm so original. <laughs> and, um, and then there's also my, uh, my Patreon as well, if anyone's interested for the podcast. And all any, any money that I raise from that basically helps me keep doing it. And um, there's various tiers of support, which start at something ridiculous, like 75p a month or something. So I was like, How, what's the lowest I can get away with actually putting on the site that it'll accept? So there's uh, there's basically loads of ways to ensure that I can actually keep keep doing this and keep producing. Great. And you and people really should check out Icy's work and the Fabulous Folklore podcast, which is, I mean, I, I oh, I almost forgot to mention it. Um, one of the first podcasts I ever listened to was Myths and Legends, uh, which is, you know, folklore and retelling these stories in a narrative way and a lot of different cultures and stories and things. Uh, really fun. And when I learned of Icy and her work, <laughs> uh, one of the ways I still define fabulous folklore is the next level <laughs> of that, where there's the even more detailed analysis on like some of the origins and the folklore and the various stories. So, you know, I, I cannot recommend fabulous folklore enough and the episodes are only like 20 minutes long at the most as well because i know um yeah it's just i i'm, I'm aware that obviously i'm about to say this on a, a, a podcast interview there's been more than 20 minutes but i think um yeah there, there's definitely a space for the shorter the shorter podcast yeah no absolutely like i i consume longer podcasts and make one but <laughs> Uh, the, the shorter ones are very useful and really good too. So, you know, no, no, no judgment there. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, from, from our work, like you can find us on Twitter at left page pod. And if you'd like to support us on Patreon as well, uh, at patreon.com forward slash left page, uh, we have two, two things that we uh, try to do monthly as best we can which are like a reading corner where I try to go over 
either some other fiction that I read about um, or that I read and write a bit about that wouldn't fit into an episode or might at some point uh, or some other academic work because that's what I've been doing. <laughs> and the poetry club where me and my former co-host Bruno, we go over a, a poem and make some interesting analysis and it's weird and bizarre and fun. So, you know, if, if you'd like some more of me and what those, <laughs> the fun conversations I, I try and tend to have, uh, there's some more out there too. Uh, but yeah, thank you so, so much, Icy. This has been a really, really good time. And thanks again for uh, sharing some of your work, some of what you've been doing. And it's it's just been great all around. Thank you so much. It's been my absolute pleasure. <laughs>